0: And this is Dark Origins Podcast, a podcast where I tell Rob about the inspirations behind all different mediums of art. So movies, TV shows, music, etc. And sometimes we talk about times where life imitates art.
2: So you've been researching for a while and I don't know what you've been looking into. Uh, Usually I have some kind of hint. I don't remember anything. So what are we talking about today?
0: Yeah, there was a lot of a uh, many crimes were committed in this many case. Crimes. Yes. So, like, are we
2: talking like petty theft?
0: No, we're theft talking auto. like the worst crimes that a person could possibly commit. So I want to give a trigger warning for incest and crimes against young children. So oh, if boy. that's not something that you are able to listen to right now.
2: Take a hike. It's cool. Come back next week.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Please. Please.
2: You know, uh, these are sensitive subjects and we understand, you know, it can really, it it can, it can trigger stuff, right? Like it doesn't mean sometimes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I can listen to certain things, you know, some days are are good and I can listen to certain things and other days I'm just not feeling so great and I can't listen to those types of things. So yeah, I totally get it.
2: Yeah. I I get that a hundred percent.
0: Yeah. All right. So I stumbled upon today's case while I was researching songs inspired by true crimes. Obviously, it's something I look up often because of the nature (laughs) of the podcast. I sure hope so. But I came across a Reddit thread that I hadn't seen before. The poster was asking for more examples of songs about true crimes, and they mentioned an example in their post. I'm going to read their post to you because it really embodies the spirit of our podcast, and I'll explain what I mean by that after.
2: We should link the post in the comments.
0: Yes, I will link the post in the description of the podcast. Perfect. So, user No Way All Right Okay writes Does anyone have any songs about or referencing true crime? As an example, recommendation Sun Kill Moon, Richard Ramirez died today of natural causes. Good song, but heavy content. If the title didn't tell you that, the eerie guitar will. The song is centered on the death of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. But the song isn't only about crime or Richard Ramirez. He makes the point that shocking news events are a sort of memorable shared experience, singing, these things mark time and make us pause. Also mentioning the Jim Jones massacre, among other tragic and or shocking events. He also mentions visiting his hometown in Ohio and references, quote, a house that was the scariest of them all. A cute little pond with a sign for sale, but those sexting kids' lives was hell. And if you don't believe me, pick up Lowell Caulfield's House of Secrets, unquote. So that was the the Reddit post. Quote, these things mark time and make us pause, unquote, is a sentiment that many of us probably agree with. Nobody is affected by crime more than the victims and their families, but crime has large social implications as well. Fear, mourning, huge losses are something felt by most people who hear about crimes. Those feelings become exponentially worse as proximity to the crime increases. Like we've mentioned before, art is one way that we cope with these feelings, and I've always found it fascinating. It's a method of communication, a way to tell the victim's families that they're seen and that people care. It's used to draw attention to unsolved crimes and play a more functional role in the issue. It connects us to one another and helps us cope with the horrors of the world. With that being said, I'm obviously talking about the song Richard Ramirez Died Today of Natural Causes by Sun Kill Moon. But I won't be talking about Richard Ramirez. Instead, I want to talk about one of the other cases the artist mentioned, and that is the case of the Sexton family.
2: All right. Uh, Yeah, from Ohio?
0: Yes. So the patriarch of the Sexton family was a man named Eddie Lee Sexton. He was born on May 12, 1942, in Logan, West Virginia, a very rural area of the country. He came from a family of coal miners, with his father preaching part-time at a Baptist church. Although his father would end up backsliding, as they called it, which was a word used by fundamentalists to describe those who leave the religion. It coincided with him leaving his family to move in with a woman in Kentucky for a year. But he was remorseful, not that it makes his actions any better. Eddie's mother was his biggest supporter. He could do no wrong in her eyes. She treated him much differently than the rest of her children. He was always given his own toys and candy while his brothers and sisters would have to share between themselves. Eddie never had to do any chores or work while the rest of the children did. Instead, he got to cuddle with his mom while she read him stories while Mm. they watched all the other kids do chores. This isn't going well. It's strange that he was the favorite since he was the one getting in trouble all the time, but I guess that's how these things usually go. The child who's made to feel like a god ends up developing a god complex feeling as if they can do no wrong and believing that they're entitled to whatever they want no matter how much it hurts others. The first time Eddie got in trouble he was 14 years old. The family was living in Ironton, Ohio at the time when he decided to break into a local store to steal watches. He was caught and sentenced to a year in a reformatory school. A few years later he enlisted in the army but it only took six months before he was dishonorably discharged for bad conduct. The next time he got in trouble with the law was the day after he married his 15-year-old pregnant girlfriend. He was 20 years old at the time, although he was only 10 days shy of turning 21, so he was almost 21 at the time.
2: Well, he's over 18. She's way under. Yeah. Still gross.
0: Yep. So the day after they got married, he decided to commit armed robbery at a gas station in West Virginia, but he was promptly caught. He was sentenced to serve five years in prison. Still his mother's baby boy, she sent him $6,000 throughout his stay and bought him a brand new Pontiac after he was released.
2: That's a hell of a honeymoon.
0: Yeah, I know. She Thankfully, his learn. wife, his child bride, ended up divorcing him. His child bride? She is.
2: Yeah, it's just a fucked up statement. I know. I don't think I've ever heard that term before. Really? Yeah, child bride. I've turned a blind eye to that one.
0: Yeah, I've definitely heard that it, before. Just
2: because it fucks with me. I, yeah, I don't like that shit.
0: I know me neither. Um, but yeah. So thankfully, she divorced him after he was sentenced and went to prison.
2: Oh, good. Uh, that okay? Okay. She had the baby and then uh, was off on her own, like with her family or whatever.
0: Yes. Okay. After prison, he met a woman named Estella May, but she goes by Stella. I would too. Actually, she. She goes by Stella and by May, but I'm going to be calling her Stella.
2: Well, I'm partial to the name Stella.
0: Yeah, me too. It's my sister's dog's name.
2: Yeah, and that dog is super cute. Yeah, she is. She's a maniac with a ball.
0: Yeah, she is. (laughs) (laughs) Hours. I mean, it's literally all she does all day. Yeah, Yeah, I know. He lied to her about his past, telling her he had been in the army, omitting the fact that he had been kicked out and completely neglecting to mention the time he'd done in prison. So he I mean didn't tell her the well, most she
2: doesn't know won't hurt her, you know. Yeah. What a dick.
0: She had one child already, but the father went off to Vietnam and they never spoke again. So
2: Okay, so this is in like uh in the early seventies, I'm assuming. Late sixties, early seventies?
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. She wasn't sure if he had died, but she'd just never heard from him again. So he's completely out of the picture, the child's father. He's MIA. Yeah.
2: Thank you for your service, wherever you are.
0: Yes. Thank you for your service. The two fell in love while Eddie tried to start his preaching career. So he's gotten out of prison. He's deciding, I'm going to try to start preaching. Because if you remember from the last paragraph, his dad was a preacher. Yeah. He also had a brother who was a preacher, so it was something that a lot of people in his family did.
2: He's trying to follow in the family business. I mean, I guess it made sense. It just took me by surprise because up to now, he's seems like no good. Yeah, right. I mean, he's also been a victim, it sounds like, too, but cuddling with mom.
0: Yeah, but I don't think it was more than that. I think it was really just cuddling, but... He might have been a victim in prison. A lot of people do speculate that, that maybe he was sexually assaulted in prison. Um, A lot of people are. Yeah, they are. The doctrine he espoused was strange, and his church ultimately failed after six months. Eddie made his money through fraud mostly. He collected disability, apparently from a back injury he sustained at some point in his life. Don't know when. But he also claimed to have cancer, multiple sclerosis, and muscular dystrophy at different points throughout his life. Hmm. He received aid from multiple charities using a wheelchair when anyone from the charity visited and then just popping up out of the wheelchair when they left. (laughs) What an asshole. Yeah. And and if it's not clear, Stella is still with him. She's going, she stays with him. She's down for this. She's, yeah.
2: She's down for the hustle.
0: Yeah. He occasionally worked with his brother painting houses, the only honest work he ever did. And he also committed a lot of insurance fraud multiple times.
2: Charity fraud, insurance fraud. All kinds of fraud, right?
0: Yeah. He set fire to his home several times. And at one point, he asked his father-in-law to help him set fire to his home with five of his children still inside. Okay. So I'll say now, Eddie and Stella end up having 12 kids all together. Excuse me? Yes. And he went to his father-in-law to ask him to help him set fire to his home while his five least favorite children were inside. And I'm not saying, like, this is literally how it's described. His father-in-law went to the FBI with this information, telling them that Eddie had promised him $10,000 of the insurance money if he went along with the plan. Eddie told him that he had mafia connections who could get him chemicals from Detroit, Michigan. The chemicals supposedly ate through the insulation on the wires, causing an electrical fire that could not be traced. So they couldn't prove it was arson. His father-in-law told him absolutely not, but he didn't contact authorities right away as he wasn't sure how serious Eddie was about this plan. That was until he found out that a few months later, their house did catch fire and the circumstances sounded oddly familiar. The day it happened, Eddie and Stella had taken their favorite children out of the house and left four of them behind with a couple who had been staying with them to babysit them. Thankfully, the couple took the four kids out for ice cream right before the fire started, so nobody was hurt. So, one of them made the cut. Apparently, yeah.
2: He must have done the dishes or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? Is and happening? actually, that is a good point that you make because you'll see as we go throughout this, he does flip flop on his children like that, going from.
2: Oh, you're kidding. This guy can't make fucking decisions? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And hold to them? Yeah.
2: Wow, that's a shock.
0: Yeah, I know. God. But there was $50,000 worth of damage to the house. The arson investigator couldn't prove that Eddie was the one who set the fire. So they know it's him, but however he did it, they were not able to trace it.
2: Yeah, like it's not what you know, it's what you can prove, right?
0: Yeah. Stella seemed to go along with everything Eddie did, no matter how unhinged it got. Eddie ran his family like a cult, espousing strange religious beliefs and telling his children that they would be harmed if they didn't listen to his every word. He told them he worshipped God and the devil. One of the children, Charles, recounted a time late at night when his brother and him were laying in bed. They heard a noise from outside the window, so they popped up to look outside. They said they were met with the face of a beast, the devil. They screamed, prompting their mother to run to their room to check on them. Shortly after, their father came to see what was going on. They told him what they'd seen, and he told them that that was the devil. He was outside their window. But he promised them the devil wouldn't hurt them as long as they listened to him. It was revealed later on, obviously, that it was Eddie dressed up in a costume, stoking fear in his children to make sure they obeyed him. At one point, he took his family out to the yard and had them gather around a statue of Jesus. The statue had Jesus positioned with his hands out, palms up like this as if he's like offering you something
2: like he's holding the tray his hands up
0: yeah eddie grabbed a sledgehammer and smashed the arms off of the statue while preaching his insane bullshit i don't know what exactly he was saying but he was saying something weird as fucking scary
2: that doesn't surprise me knowing what i know about this guy
0: yeah he left the statue like that placing it in front of the house so it was one of the first things visitors would see And this is something that a lot of the visitors would know is that they would come up to the house and see this creepy-ass Jesus statue with the arms broken off standing out front. That's so weird. I know. Although they didn't have visitors often. (laughs) I can't imagine why. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Welcome to our armless Jesus home.
0: It wasn't just because people were freaked out by the family. is also right. because Eddie didn't want yeah, anyone Yeah, he's to a there. monster. Yeah. The kids weren't really allowed to have friends. They were never permitted to go anywhere or have anyone over. So it was suspicious when multiple daughters became pregnant because they hadn't been able to date anyone. Everyone in the family knew it was like an open secret. Eddie was sexually assaulting all of his children, the boys and girls. How, do you, how does one have that much time? I don't know.
2: What a sick fuck. Well,
0: because he doesn't do anything else. Like, this is all he does.
2: I guess that... Yeah.
0: Their mother was accused of sexually assaulting some of the children, too.
2: She had to have been. Yeah. She had to have been involved.
0: There were times where it was like she was standing by watching her husband do it, or or she was
2: Actively doing, engaged.
0: Yeah, actively engaged with him. Or there were also times, it sounds like, where... She did it by herself. Well, yeah. So.
2: Yeah, I mean, these two people are monsters.
0: Yeah. But it was different with the girls. Eddie seemed to want actual relationships with some of them. Pixie especially. Pixie was the oldest daughter. And she is the one who gets pregnant the most. And has. The most? His children the most. Yes. Oh, this is, this is not good. This is bad. no. No. And Pixie is, her real name is Stella Jr., but she goes by Pixie. One night, the family was downstairs dancing together when Eddie and Pixie came down, a veil over Pixie's face. Eddie announced how he was marrying Pixie. The family looked on with disgust and confusion, but nobody seemed to grasp just how fucked up this all was. He would go on to do this with multiple daughters. After the quote-unquote weddings... He would take them back to the room he shared with Stella and rape them. And he would call it their honeymoon. Not knowing any better from the extreme abuse they had faced all their lives, some of the daughters, Pixie in particular, really cared about the relationship she had with her dad. Of course. Like she, well, she knew. Yeah. She really wanted to be in a really, like, she didn't, I don't, it's so hard to, okay. So I want to say this real quick. As we go through this, I'm going to be explaining some of the children's behavior, or I'm going to be telling you some of the children's behavior and actions. I don't want it to ever sound like I am blaming them because I am absolutely not. Certain action, right. certain actions where they hurt other people, yes, I, I, they do have culpability in that. They do have some responsibility in that, so, but um, for the most part, I mean, these kids, these children have been abused since the day they were so, born. They know nothing else at yeah, it's, this time. It's the only thing that
2: they know—that's what they were taught—that is their world. Yes,
0: and it is their parents' fault. I don't want it to sound like I'm ever blaming them. I am. I'm just telling you what happened. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I think I think that that makes sense.
0: So, yeah, just
2: a—they
0: were—they were all victims.
2: Yeah, and you're talking about this like basically from their perspective, kind of. Like what, like she, like Pixie, for instance, she cared about the relationship she was in with her father. Yeah. So that was 100% normal for her.
0: Yes. Yes. It Nothing was. Nothing
2: wrong with that for her.
0: No, no, absolutely not. It, but, it is all that she knew. And, you know, you love your parents, you want affection from your parents. If you know that the way that your dad is going to show quote unquote affection to you is via this romantic relationship.
2: You're a, you're, victim. Gonna... you're a victim and you're brainwashed
0: Yeah, into yeah.
2: thinking this is normal.
0: Yeah. So after Pixie gave birth to his second child, he pressured her to find a boyfriend to cover up the incest. That's when Joel came into the picture. He was a sweet boy growing up. He was shy, quiet, and somewhat awkward, but he was genuine and kind. His childhood was marred by tragedy as both of his parents died when he was 13. His father died from a heart attack and his mother died from diabetes. After their deaths, he was taken in by his grandparents. Eventually he moved in with his aunt and uncle though. His aunt was his mom's sister and she promised her sister she would take care of Joel. So she didn't hesitate when he showed interest in moving in with her. The family lived in Jackson, Ohio. They weren't wealthy, but they were able to get by. Joel started working as a teen to save up to buy a car even though he was shy, he was able to make friends at school and around his neighborhood. He had a learning disability and low IQ, which made navigating school and all of the social interactions that went along with it a little more challenging for him. But he didn't seem to mind when other kids made fun of him. What? He was. He just like took it? He just didn't care. He just said, okay, fuck you guys, I don't care. Good for him. Yeah. He was very level-headed and seemed to look for the best in everyone. I think that's the other thing, too, is he just, he paid attention to the good in everyone and ignored the bad. Okay. Although Joel had befriended several girls, one that he seemed particularly interested in, he struggled to work up the courage to ask them on dates. But as prom rolled around, he felt it might be appropriate to try and make his move. So he approached his friend Tracy, that's the one that he had a crush on, and asked if she would like to go to prom with him. She nervously responded, telling him she had already told a different boy that she would go to prom with him. Feeling bad about the situation and not wanting to disappoint Joel, she asked if he had any interest in going with any other girl at their school. Joel told her that he was kind of interested in their friend Pixie. With Tracy's help, Joel asked Pixie, and she said yes. So they go to prom it's really fucking awkward oh no okay and it kind of stays pretty awkward because they're both awkward people yeah and they're both very quiet and shy it stays pretty awkward for a while for the first few dates but they keep seeing each other and eventually they start a real relationship and Joel falls in love with her
2: he doesn't know anything about what's going on in the home at this point
0: at this point, he doesn't know anything about what's going on the, okay. going on in the home. No. Joel was a noble boy growing into a noble man, maybe a little too quickly. He wanted to marry Pixie. His family was nervous about the relationship. They thought it was moving too quickly, and they thought the Sextons were strange and potentially dangerous. Huh. But Joel loved Pixie, and he really looked up to her father. He, meaning Joel was very trusting and believed everything the Sextons told him. He didn't know about any of the more taboo things that went on in the house. He surely didn't know that Pixie was in an abusive, ancestral relationship with her father. Nor did he know about the extreme things Eddie had forced his family to participate in, such as the night Eddie summoned his family to the kitchen. I'm going to say a trigger warning for animal abuse. I would skip ahead 15 seconds, starting now. He had set up the table like a seance, and there, in the middle of the kitchen table, was the family's cat, dead. He apparently forced each child to drink the blood of the cat during this bizarre ceremony. And this is just one of the many scary, terrifying, fucked up things that he makes his family do. Yeah,
2: that's really twisted.
0: Yeah. As we go on, you'll hear about some more, but he forces them to do really bizarre fucked up shit
2: i don't know how you even think of that but okay
0: i no me neither well like what the fuck
2: i mean i can think of some fucked up shit but i would never come up with something like that
0: no me neither that's no obviously the family couldn't hide everything from joel but they manipulated him over time keeping him close enough to use as a cover for Pixie, but far enough that he wouldn't run and tell everyone what was going on in the Sexton household. So, yeah, while he didn't see the incredibly fucked up illegal things that Eddie was making his family do, he did see some, you know, fucked up... Weird shit. Weird shit, and some fucked up weird shit happened... To him as well. So, what movie, do we, so. wh-
2: what could you tell us now, or is that later in the story?
0: I'll tell you later in the story. Oh, boy. Eddie had convinced his children that he had supernatural powers, which I know I've mentioned before, but I'm just mentioning it again because it is so important to the story to understand how big of an impact this had on the kids believing that he had supernatural powers.
2: Right. Dad is God.
0: Yeah. They believed he could read their minds and enter their dreams. The consequence for spilling family secrets was death. He instilled a deep-seated fear in his children that kept them from reaching out for help. But his daughter, Michelle, who had always been one of the more bold, fearless, courageous. Independent thinker. Yeah, children in the family just couldn't take it anymore. So she's a senior in high school at this time. Oh, and so
2: she's been exposed to normalcy by this point. In her life, right?
0: Kind of. So that's actually really important with Michelle and something that they talk a lot about in the book by Lowell Caulfield. Right. Um, The only normalcy that... The only time that she was really exposed to normal people was in two places. One, at school. Right. Two, watching movies and TV shows. So Michelle really studied the behaviors of her peers and of people in tv shows and movies and that is how she adapted to live in the world despite coming from this really dysfunctional family and obviously as she was able to kind of analyze other people's relationships and behavior she started to realize how unhealthy the dynamics in her family were. So while all of the children went to public schools because they were so worried about their dad finding out about them talking to other people or teachers or counselors about what was going on at home, they just isolated and kept to themselves.
2: Okay. Well, there's also twelve of them. I mean, they have a full a full team of yes people. I mean, you could play any sport with all your. Oh, zones. Well,
0: yeah, yeah. You know, um, like you yeah,
2: have, you have a whole roster.
0: And their dad would use the sheer number of them to his advantage and say to the ones that he felt he could quote unquote, trust more. Hey, watch out for your other siblings and call me if you see them talking to anyone, which they do. So, so he's got a small cult
2: yeah. of little minions that he grew from infancy. Yes. This is a special kind of fucked up.
0: Yeah. So Michelle reached out to a counselor at her school to tell her that she needed to talk about some problems at home. The counselor contacted the DHS in Ohio to speak with her. The DHS actually had a file on the Sexton's that went all the way back 11 years. Unfortunately, they weren't able to prove abuse or neglect had occurred in the household in, you know, those 11 previous years. So the children were able to stay with the parents. Yeah. Wayne Welsh was the DHS worker assigned to the case. When he arrived to talk to Michelle, she told him that she was pregnant and that her father was trying to kill the baby. Her brother James had seen her kissing her boyfriend, the one who got her pregnant. Supposedly. Yeah. And told their father about it. So she did really have a boyfriend and she was really kissing him. Whether or not he was the father of her baby or not, I'm not sure. Yeah. That night... When Michelle got home, because he's pissed at her for kissing her boyfriend, he tried to kick Michelle in the stomach, but her sister got between them and yelled at their father, quote, get out, you child killer, unquote. Wayne asked why Sherry would say that, and Michelle told him that Sherry had been pregnant a year ago and their father kicked her in the stomach, causing her to miscarry. Oh, my God. Wayne knew that this would not be enough to open a DHS case. I don't know why it seems like enough to me but there's apparently probably no wasn't. evidence
2: there's no evidence of it yeah yeah
0: but he knew he had to try to get Michelle out of there asap she was 18 at this point even though she was still a senior in high school so you know it it's that's that weird age where you're like still in high school but you are technically a legal adult so you you know well
2: yeah leave yeah but I mean, I mean, it's not that simple i know it's definitely
0: not that simple he told Michelle he could drive her to the YWCA.
2: Yeah. That's Young a Women's.
0: Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Okay. Where they had a program for young women in crisis. Michelle agreed to go. Wayne then reached out to the police department to have them also interview Michelle. So the sergeant at the police department, Barry Lyons, was sent to interview her. And he himself had had many experiences with the Sexton family. None of them pleasant. He had seen Eddie Sexton file reports about his house being broken into, which obviously ended up being fraudulent. <laughs> Comically, one of the reports detailed all of the things Eddie said had been stolen.
2: Seventy-five inch flat screen television <laughs> MacBook Pro and
0: <laughs> And he reported a certificate of recognition from Congress for his service in Vietnam as being one of them. When asked what the value of being one of them? As being one of the items stolen. Yes. (laughs) What? What? He's dishonorably discharged. Right.
2: This guy's completely delusional. Like
0: the fact that you're filing a fraudulent police report saying that your house was broken into and things were stolen when that wasn't actually true and you think it's important to add a fake certificate of recognition. Like that's how just delusional narcissistic and in need of attention he was when i was growing up uh, when we lived on morris road the
2: house that had the pool yeah the next door neighbor would tell lies all the time like she was intense and she was talking about how she went up north and it started to snow and it was a bad snowstorm and she spun out and wrecked her car right she told my dad that they gave the state police issued her a certificate, a, a certificate of commendation for keeping the car on the road for as long as she did. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. What her the name fuck? was
0: Karen. That tracks absolutely. <laughs> that that's crazy. Yeah, I, it's like some There's people. So many stories. Just have this pension. I feel like I have heard your family. Talk you about have it heard before, a little bit, yeah. and that is hilarious. <laughs> People make that up. It's weird. I mean, I have met compulsive liars like that. So when he was listing these things, he had to list, you know, what the item was and then the value of the item. Yeah. So when asked what the value of that item was, he simply wrote, can't replace.
2: So why you put it there?
0: He just wanted everyone to know. And he wanted everyone to know that that was priceless to him. Yeah yeah okay that makes sense someone stole it from him i see that okay but yeah really he did just want everyone to know that he that he supposedly went to vietnam which he obviously did not fight in vietnam so these were the kind of insane things he did for money attention and admiration barry had also worked cases involving eddie that were much more nefarious In 1991, Eddie called police and reported his nephew had been kidnapped at gunpoint from his house by his own brothers. By the nephew's own brothers, not by Eddie's brothers.
2: Right, 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 right,
0: right. When the detectives spoke with the nephew and the brothers, they told a very different story. Eddie's nephew had a developmental disability and received Social Security because of it. Eddie had somehow applied to be his new guardian, giving him access to all of his Social Security checks... Which he obviously stole and kept for himself to make matters worse, he physically abused his nephew and was basically holding him hostage. The nephew did not want to be there. I don't know how Eddie was able to get guardianship of him, right, but with all
2: this shit on the record,
0: I mean, just at all, I don't right, I mean it's weird, yeah,
2: oh, you don't know like why he wasn't with his parents, yeah, or yeah, like why uh, yeah. Let alone that fucking guy get him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, they've got 12 kids. They could handle another one.
0: Yeah. Like it's Fuck. absolutely insane.
2: Uh, this is the 70s for you. Things yeah. are different.
0: Yeah. So the nephew was able to get a message out to his brothers that he was in serious trouble and they showed up to save him. Another case that he had been involved in was a dispute between him and his neighbor. His neighbor, Walter, lived with his wife and his daughter, Kathleen who happened to also have a developmental disability. It seems like he really targets people with developmental disabilities because they get SSI.
2: Well, that and they're vulnerable.
0: The families got along at first. Eddie even advised Walter that he could sign his daughter up for Social Security due to her disability, and he provided his lawyer's number to help. Walter was retired at this point and dealing with his own health issues, so he took Eddie up on his suggestion. After Kathleen was successfully signed up for SSI, she was given back pay for all of the years she hadn't received aid. Well, she got a big lump sum and then got X amount of dollars every month, right? Yeah. She began to receive regular checks as well. Having the family right where he wanted them, Eddie approached Walter and offered to become his legal guardian, promising to help him find an amazing doctor to treat his stomach cancer. Walter politely declined, not knowing that Eddie would become hostile. <laughs> And this began a series of terrifying events for Walter. Eddie enlisted his boys to destroy Walter's property, climb over his fence and beat on his doors and windows and steal from him, among other things. Walter called the police many times, but all it did was cause Eddie to ramp up his efforts to torment him. Officers even called child protective services after visiting the Sexton home regarding the crimes against Walter. They noticed how dirty the house was. Sheets with old period blood laid on beds, towels that were stiff from never being washed were hung up in the bathroom. It didn't look like a house that children should be living in. But nothing was done for the children or for the neighbor. Walter? Yes. So after trying to force him to give him legal guardianship over him and that not working, Eddie decided to... Switched to plan B, which was to have one of his sons befriend Walter's daughter, Kathleen, in order to manipulate her into giving him some of the money she received from SSI. He was able to do this successfully. He took her to the bank where she withdrew $2,000 and gave it to him. What? Yeah. Obviously, Walter called police after this happened. Yeah. But the bank said it because the sergeant, Barry Lyons, called the bank to see what the fuck happened and they said that she was able she had the ability to withdraw money so there's nothing they could do and then when barry called patrick the son that befriended her Uh patrick said that he did take her to the bank but he didn't steal two thousand dollars which was obviously a fucking lie and then Uh, she gave it
2: to him i mean technically yeah i i mean she's coerced obviously yeah but
0: kathleen when the officer asked kathleen what happened she said well he takes me to like some of my doctor's appointments and he helps me out so that's why i you know gave him some money so they weren't able to do anything about it
1: hey i'm ryan reynolds at Mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot
0: Needless to say, Sergeant Barry Lyons was not very fond of the family. He, alongside the DHS worker, Wayne, helped Michelle go home to get some of her clothes. This time the house was much cleaner because they they knew knew that they were coming. Thankfully, they were able to get what they needed and get out without much conflict. Eddie was on his best behavior for the officials. That same day that... Michelle went to grab some of her clothes. Pixie got married to Joel, and the couple went to the health department to have Joel's name put on the birth certificates of Pixie's children, even though he was not the father. Cause there there just wasn't a father listed because they couldn't say that. No right, fatty. but then Joel Joel's just down for that. Yes. So that this is the type of man that Joel is. He wants to take care of Pixie and take care of her children, their children. You know that I get that. He I get thinks, that. Yeah.
2: Step up, take care of the family. Let's go.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: So basically, what he's doing is he's just being a good dude.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. He still doesn't know
2: that these are her father's children.
0: No. The pregnancy support program of Stark County, which is where Michelle is now connected to to receive services had a shepherding program that placed young pregnant women in volunteer homes. The director of the program was a woman named Anne Green. They placed Michelle in a shepherding home, but apparently she had been late for curfew a few times and had also failed to tell the family where she was throughout the day and night, so there was some tension kind of brewing in the home. Sure. And then the program gave Michelle a pregnancy test, which came back negative. So we don't know why Michelle thought she was pregnant. But she she did wasn't. Yes, but she did. She did think she was
2: or she was like, I I need to get out of here. The only way out of
0: here is to tell people that I'm pregnant. That's true. That could be possible. But I think she really did believe that she was pregnant. okay unfortunately, this disqualified her from the program, but they decided to allow Michelle to stay while she figured everything out. The family noticed she had terrible nightmares. Sometimes she slept underneath the bed or in the closet. The family was growing more frustrated with her, though, because she kept missing curfew and it was just not working out with her living there. The program itself is run by very conservative people, so I imagine sure. most of the volunteer homes were very strict conservative people. Sure. And the director wanted to speak to Michelle privately. She was hoping she could she could get through to her, maybe learn a little about her life so she could better understand what Michelle was going through. When she met with her, she asked her why she thought she may have been pregnant. Michelle told her that she had been raped by her father. Anne felt a connection to Michelle. She really wanted to help her. She urged her to go to police, but Michelle, fearful of her dad, said she couldn't. If she told police the truth, her father would kill her. And this fear was, I mean, incredibly valid. Her family was clearly reminding her of that because the shepherding family that she was staying with started getting scary phone calls These they would people just don't stop no they don't they would answer the phone but all they heard was heavy breathing from the other line so we don't they don't know
2: it's them but they know it's them
0: yeah yeah the calls in conjunction with Michelle breaking curfew so often led the family to want Michelle out of their house
2: yeah fuck S-
0: yeah stuck between a rock and a hard place Michelle finally agreed to talk to police cuz she didn't really have any yeah She had no other recourse. Yeah. She told police her father had raped her and confirmed the fact that Pixie's children were fathered by their dad. After the interview, Anne drove her back to the women's shelter she had been staying at since she got kicked out of the shepherding family's house. Michelle hated the shelter. In the coming days, she would attempt to run away and eventually tried to kill herself by overdosing (sighs) on painkillers. This landed her a spot in the psych unit. While she was in the psych unit, she ended up calling her uncle Otis, who was her dad's brother. Otis hadn't spoke with Eddie or any of his children for a year since he had since he'd had a falling out with Eddie. but he took Michelle in he really wanted to help her. He was not like Eddie, although he had you know some of his own kind of weird quirks sure. he was not like I mean, Eddie people are
2: weird, but they don't have uh vampire vampiric uh seances with their family right and and also rape get their everyone children and, pregnant
0: yeah, yeah, she told him about the rape and gave him the contact information for her d h s caseworker Wayne. Otis was aware of some of Eddie's abusive behavior, but he he didn't know for sure everything that was going on, so
2: he knew that he's probably like maybe violent. But not necessarily um, raping his children.
0: Yeah. So, or we
2: don't know for sure.
0: He did start to suspect that he might might have been raping his children, but he he had never had any proof. Proof. I don't know why he didn't try to do anything. Maybe he was afraid of. I I don't know. It's his um, brother. Yeah. So he recounted a time when his own daughters called him while babysitting for Eddie. They were terrified, telling him that some of the children were chained up in a bedroom and they didn't know what to do. The kids had clearly been there for a long time because their hands and feet were purple. They had gone to the bathroom all over the spot and were forced to just sit there in it. Otis told them to get the children out of the binds immediately, and he came over to help. Around this time, Wayne, the DHS caseworker, had been notified of an anonymous tip left for DHS. The tipster said that Sherry, another sister, had also been raped by her father. Armed with these abuse allegations, they were finally able to respond actionably. So I guess having the combination of Michelle's allegations and this tip, they they could start to do something about it. Okay. They picked up the rest of the underage children. Some of them went calmly while others resisted. I'm sure they were all terrified. Their dad Uh, had convinced them that he was omnipresent, aware of everything they did, and it was certain death if they went against him.
2: Right, like struck down from the sky. Yeah. Right.
0: So all of the underage children went to stay with their uncle Otis until other arrangements could be made. There was never any plan for them all to stay with him. They just needed to stay there until they could get into... Individual like he's just foster trying
2: homes. To like help, yeah, yeah he's a he's a stopping point,
0: yes, Eddie claimed the whole thing was a conspiracy against him. He alleged Otis and Michelle made everything up for some reason. I don't know what reason that was. he tried to say that it was because Otis was the one who preyed on young girls and he wanted to like have control of. His kids, but there's oh, no. It's
2: not me. It's him. Right. Yeah. Come on, dude. Right.
0: There's never been any evidence to back up that claim. Just to make that super clear. Yeah. yeah I
2: think we know. At, fuck Eddie. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Fuck Eddie.
0: Meanwhile, the Sexton parents were busy hatching up plans to get their children back. They would sneakily make unauthorized contact with them.
2: That's kind of hard to do, right? Because this is before cell phones, right? Like now. If, if this was the case, they would just do a DNA test, right? Done. Uh, but not in the 70s.
0: No, at this point, it's the 90s.
2: Still. Early it, 90s. I mean, even in the 90s, like DNA testing was very expensive.
0: Yeah, it was. It was. But I mean, they should have done it. But yes, it was. So all of the kids have been sent to separate foster homes and the Sexton's were clearly stalking Yeah. All of their different foster families. That's
2: a full time job.
0: Yes. Following them home, showing up at their children's schools to try to talk to them while they're like outside of school. They would have the children call them from payphones. So they were they were scaring the foster families and making contact with their children when they were not supposed to have any contact against or any contact with them. Right. And they're other plan was to try to take advantage of Stella's supposed indigenous heritage. They wanted custody matters to be transferred to the Allegheny National Tribal Council. The only proof she had was a tribal card she got from the Allegheny Nation Indian Community Center after the children were taken from her. Uh Apparently the tribe was not recognized by the state of Ohio or the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs so the court wouldn't they they wouldn't allow them to
2: do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like they, they were, yes, they were basically saying like, that's not a recognized tribe. So no, you yeah, can't they, transfer it. Like what? If anyone is not familiar, because in the U S we have a history of basically stealing indigenous babies away from their parents and, disconnecting them from their culture and from their family and giving them to white families. They passed the Indian Child Welfare Act. The law basically says that if a Native American child is taken from their family, the preference is that they go to an immediate another immediate family member first. If that can't be done, then I believe they go to a foster family within that tribe. Basically they're trying not taking to taking people
2: away from these people. Yes. Like I just looked that up and, and their census at that time was 1100 people. Right. So if, if they're losing children. Yeah. Like then, I mean, that's killing them slowly is what that's doing.
0: Yeah. It's cultural genocide.
2: Yes. Yes. Again, or continually.
0: Yes. Yeah. Let's so, like get started on that. So, I don't know what the family was, I don't know why they thought they would fare better having their case be transferred there because the children would still be taken away. They would just first, they would try to send them to someone in Stella's family, I assume because she's the one claiming to have indigenous heritage. And then if that wasn't possible, they would place the children in a foster family that is a part of that tribe.
2: Well, they probably were just trying to do anything that they could.
0: That I think that that is the point, is they were just trying to disrupt the case as much as possible. Yeah, that makes
2: sense. Yeah, but They're monsters. I can see them wanting to do that.
0: Yeah, but this plan did not really <laughs> it work. It did not come so to I'll, fruition. I'll, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll get into it a little bit more about, like, what happens with their heritage claims, but... It doesn't help them at all. Thank God. Right. So the judge on the case asked the North American Indian Cultural Center to investigate their heritage claims. Sure. That is all that the North American Indian Cultural Center was supposed to do. Just investigate the heritage claims. They end up getting a little more involved than in that and kind of getting themselves into some hot water. Um, oh. at least it wasn't the fault of the center itself. It was more the fault of one specific counselor. But
2: okay, try to go all vigilante.
0: No, well, tell um, me the story. I yeah, won't. I'll tell you. Okay. Um. So, in the beginning of this case, some of the children admitted that physical beatings were the norm in their household, but many of them were not ready to admit the true extent of the abuse. One of the scariest punishments that they talked about in regards to getting beat was after a beating happened, their father would shove them into a closet, close the door and spray raid through the bottom. I'm genuinely surprised he didn't kill any of his kids doing this on accident or on purpose. But that was... What? What? Yeah, that was a punishment that many of them experienced. But as time went on, they began to open up. There were a couple of kids, though, who throughout the whole case just could not tell. They couldn't, they wouldn't incriminate their parents. So, I mean, they're probably fucking terrified, you know? Yeah. So at this point, they've found foster families for all the kids, obviously. Michelle was the only child still living with Uncle Otis.
2: And oh, so she's the first one there and the last one to leave. Yeah. I guess that makes sense, right? No, get them safe. I'll stay here. I'm older, you know.
0: Yeah, and she was 18, so right. they didn't have to get her foster family. She could right. stay wherever she wanted to. The other kids could not. They had to go where DHS told them, you know.
2: Right, even though, well, also, I imagine Otis didn't have the resources.
0: Yeah. To who to has the resources that to take many care, kids? care of 12 children? Yeah. Well, he doesn't have 12 of them because... Several of them are over the age of 18 at this point. Right. But it's still a lot of kids.
2: More than two is a ton of children. Yeah, yeah. It's like herding cats.
0: Yeah. And they had to separate the children for other reasons, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But I'll just say now that because of the unhealthy dynamics that they grew up in, they some of them started to sexually assault each other.
2: Yeah. But, okay, so... Is that sexual assault or is it, like, just normal and that's what they want to do?
0: There were times where they both technically, quote-unquote, consented consented to it, but then there were other times where it was absolutely sexual assault and one of the older kids forced the younger kid or kids to...
2: Perform X, Y, and Z.
0: Yeah. So... Michelle's living with Uncle Otis, and he is putting so much time and effort into helping his nieces and nephews. But unfortunately, tension was brewing in the household between him and Michelle. So Otis knew that Eddie and Stella were stalking each kid, and he was so worried for Michelle's safety. He rarely let her leave the house. She had to have guards escort her to and from places
2: he's like trying to help but it's becoming abusive
0: no it's not there there is an abusive thing that happens but i wouldn't say it's becoming abusive i would just say he has to take these measures these ones specifically um of not really letting her leave and of having her have guards you know take her places to keep her safe but Michelle was a teenage girl who wanted to hang out with friends and finish high school and live a semi-normal life. And she didn't understand why her uncle had to take such drastic measures. Sure, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, she started to resent him for it. This resulted in her running away multiple times. Her mom had also been able to get little messages through to her to tell her that she loved her and she promised to divorce her father. So, you know, Michelle's resenting her uncle Otis. Her mom has somehow been able to, you know, get these messages through to her. And it's just kind of sitting there in her head. Like maybe I could go back with my mom and everything would be okay. And she'll divorce my dad and things will be good. Yeah. And finally, everything came to a head one night when Michelle called Otis's wife a bitch. Against his better judgment and everyone's better judgment, Otis slapped her. Sure. Michelle left that night and the next day she called her mom. This is where a counselor from the North American Indian Cultural Center gets in some hot water. So after Michelle calls her mom saying, okay, I want to come back and live at home, her mom needs to get her a ride back home. So her mom calls one of the counselors that they had met at the North American Indian Cultural Center because, remember, they are just supposed to be investigating their heritage. So they've interviewed Stella and Eddie.
2: They don't necessarily know everything that's going on, though,
0: right? No, they do. Oh, they do. They do. Okay. Okay. But the counselor that was working with the family seemed to believe the sexton parents for some reason, or I don't, they didn't think it was that big of a deal, or they just. For whatever reason, they sided with. Yeah. Yes. Wow. So when Stella called the counselor asking him to drive Michelle home, he agreed. On the way home, Michelle had a terrible anxiety attack. Basically, like it looked like she was having a seizure.
2: Yeah, makes sense.
0: And she had to be taken to the hospital. After she gets discharged from the hospital, she goes back home to her mom. With Michelle back at home, Stella convinced her to recant her accusations. Stella knew that her children were being raped. They had come to her and told her, so this is not, and she had also been a part of it. Yeah, Stella knew. Yeah. But she promised Michelle that she would leave her father. So Michelle wanted to believe her mom and believe in her mom and thought, I mean, yeah. She wanted to believe in her mother. Yeah, yeah. She wanted, uh, that's what people want. Yeah.
2: I know people that have been abused by their parents that like want... To as adults want to have relationships with them. Yes. It makes sense. Yeah. It's fucked up, but it
0: makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And <laughs> Stella knew that the accusations were coming from two places one, Michelle, mostly Michelle, two, that anonymous tipster. Right. So the majority of the case relied on Michelle's accusations.
2: And when she recants, And will no longer testify.
0: Yeah, the whole case is... Falls apart. Gone. Days after Michelle recanted, her father was back at the house. His first night back, he threatened to kill her if she ever spoke of the abuse again. And just like that, the children returned home one by one. The only child who stayed... Well, there were a couple children who did not return home. And...
2: Is that because they turned 18 and chose to not come home?
0: No. The kids who did not come home were some of the younger children. And the reason that they didn't go home was because they had disclosed to their therapist that they had been sexually assaulted by one of their siblings. For example, Uh. the 12-year-old daughter told her therapist that she was sexually assaulted by her brother Charles while her other brothers watched. And she had also mentioned satanic rituals being held by her father, which included upside-down crosses and candles, like, you know, weird seances, ritualistic abuse. It was mostly to keep her away from her brother who had sexually assaulted her. Yeah. Because at this point, you know, the case against the dad is basically gone. But with her talking, they are still able to kind of keep working on it but they're not able to like do anything at the time i guess they
2: can't prosecute yet but they're trying to get to a point where they can
0: yes but the dad still has a no contact order so he is not supposed to be at the house they are allowing them to go back home with the mom but the dad is not supposed to be there which this is why i just i don't i guess i just don't understand why more couldn't be done but anyways um so the police police began investigating the accusations against Charles by his 12-year-old sister. Some of the other children corroborated her story, the sister's story, and told detectives that Charles had also sexually assaulted their other, even younger sister, who was only eight years old. So now he's been accused of sexually assaulting multiple of his siblings. Stella hired an attorney for Charles, not wanting him to get in trouble for any of this. And then she sent him to his uncle's house to get him away from the house, probably away from where police could come and question him. Not mm-hmm. Uncle Otis, a different uncle.
2: Okay, I was gonna say, wait a minute. Yes. What?
0: Yes, not Uncle Otis. Um so,
2: like, I was like, Otis, what are you doing here?
0: Yeah, no. Some of the family will help the sexton parents out throughout this, while others like Otis are absolutely Not going to. No, this is fucked up. Yeah. The probe into Charles seemed to be the last straw for Eddie. He called a news station in Cleveland, Channel 5, and told them that he was tired of being harassed by DHS. He told them that he had barricaded himself in the house with his children, at least the children that they had with them at this point. What? And he said, I've got weapons. I'll kill any worker of police that pulls into my drive.
2: Well, that isn't going to last.
0: Yeah, he, he thought that the proper solution to all of this was to hold his children hostage. Call
2: the news and tell them what he's doing. Yeah. Fucking idiot. Oh, hey, uh, I'm also selling crack out the back
0: door. <laughs> like, what the fuck? What are you thinking? You tension needing piece of shit. I don't know. He, he also, throughout all of this, would make multiple videotapes and, like, send them to the police department and other People in the government, I think at one point he wrote a letter to the president like he was trying to get the attention of anyone who would listen to him to watch his weird ass tapes about his side of the story. So anyways, um, Charles, as an adult, actually did an interview with Investigation Discovery and he told them about this incident. He said his father had taught him and all of the other boys how to shoot guns. They practiced often and they were good at it.
2: I'm sure that they did that. It's yeah, not a surprise.
0: They would run military drills and yeah. wear military fatigues. He's fatigues. building he's
2: building an army. I mean, this guy wants a small uh cult that he grew. Like, this makes sense. This guy's really fucked up. I get it. Yeah. You need security when you have that situation.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before he called the news station, he had his kids help push furniture up against the doors and hang black garbage bags over the windows with a little space to stick their guns through. He ordered them to shoot anyone who got close to the property.
2: Because he's a coward.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah, it's always having other people do these things for him yeah. because he can't he do He wants control.
2: Himself. He wants control.
0: Yes. Thankfully, the captain of the police department at the time named Steve Zerby had known Eddie for a long time and he had a good rapport with him. I guess he used to like cut his hair or something like that a long time ago. Using this to his advantage, he spoke with Eddie on the phone, asking him what he wanted. Like, why? Why are you holding your kids hostage? And how can we get everyone out safely? Right. Eddie told the captain that he wanted his kids back. They negotiated for three hours, including the including DHS. So Steve Zerby was like the the middleman for Eddie and the DHS, trying to come to liaison. some agreement. Yes, a liaison. Yes. They negotiated for three hours and finally came to an agreement. I think the agreement was likely bullshit. They were just trying to get him out.
2: Right. We'll give you a helicopter and $25 million and you can, you know, free passport to Cuba or whatever.
0: Yeah. The agreement was that the current caseworker would be taken off of their case. He did not like their current caseworker and that DHS promised not to remove Two of the children, Christopher and Kimberly, from their house at that time. Okay, bro. Yeah, I don't know why that was. I I don't know why that was I, so important I mean, to him specifically. That's, that's but fine. We yeah.
2: will, we will. You know what? You're right. We'll do that for you.
0: Yeah, yeah. So they were able to get Eddie out safe. Everyone was safe. No one got shot. Everyone was okay. But when Charles did these interviews later on, yeah. Charles the son. He told them that when Captain Zerby was walking up to the door, they all the kids had guns pointing straight at him. Sure. I think their dad told them like if if he makes one like wrong move or right. if if anything weird happens or they try to take you guys out, shoot him. So he was Charles said he was fully prepared to shoot him if anything like that happened.
2: Uh, Zerby has balls of steel. Yeah. I mean, this guy he's he's a hero. In, in a sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, this
2: guy, because he's the captain, right? He could have sent anybody up there. Yeah. And he did it himself.
0: Yeah. And yeah. I
2: respect that. I respect that too. Heavy.
0: Yes, me too. Me too. So officials decided to let the children stay with Stella, despite the fact that she allowed Eddie to live in the house against the no contact order. After all of this happened, Eddie was only charged with child endangerment and inducing panic He was sentenced to a suspended jail term of 180 days and a fine of $100. He was holding people hostage. Yes.
2: Yeah. And he got suspended six-month sentence. Yep. And. You're you going to jail for six months. Yeah. Come on.
0: I know. They let him out on bond of seventy five hundred dollars and ordered him to stay away from his family. And then he was sentenced to a suspended jail term of one hundred eighty days and a fine of one hundred dollars. Obviously, he What's was the not. Point,
2: what is the point of a hundred dollar fine? The guy just put up seventy five hundred. Even if it's ten percent, that's seven hundred and fifty bucks. And you're going to find this guy with uh, I don't know, in the seventies, a month worth of groceries?
0: Yeah. I don't know what the point of that is, to be honest. I just can't believe that this is all they gave him when he held his family hostage. That's absolutely fucking insane to me.
2: And has trained his children to be mercenaries.
0: Yes. And I I also can't believe that they let the children stay with Stella, even though she allowed him to come back in the house, and they know that. So, anyways, he wasn't going to stay away from his kids.
2: Yeah, I mean... This fucking guy. Okay, go on. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: The Sexton's parents' plan now is to set up reservations at campgrounds under Pixie's husband's name, Joel. Yeah. And other aliases to get around the, like, limits of how many days you can stay there.
2: He just can't go home. That's it. You know, he just can't go home. So what we're going to do is we're going to move the entire fucking family, like the Partridge family, from fucking campsite to campsite. What
0: in the... I know. Okay. I need to calm down here. (laughs) Getting fired up. The parents tried to get back as many of their children as possible before going on the run. Eddie stole a camper van from his adult son and namesake, Eddie Jr. So Eddie Jr. lived with his own family at this point. Yeah. And... Trusted his dad at this point. So, on top of stealing the camper van from Eddie Jr., he had also stolen thousands of dollars throughout all of this because from him, because he was the one that posted the bond money and he had to sell like a bunch of stuff to post that. And it took a big toll on his family to get that much money that quickly. Sure. And then his dad told him that he would get it back, you know. From the court, Eddie Jr. later found out that his dad had gone to get the bond money back and just taken it. So yeah,
2: sounds about right.
0: yeah. so yeah, he has he has his camper van and a bunch of his money. This angered Eddie Jr. enough that he started to cooperate with police. Oh, yeah. Pixie's children and her husband, Joel Good, were also along for the ride. Pixie had recently given birth to her third baby, Skipper Jr. Who was named after her brother Charles' nickname? So, Charles had been called Skipper. The reason I'm not calling him Skipper in this is because we I don't want to confuse him with Skipper Jr. Joel believed Eddie when he told him that the charges were bogus. That's why he agreed to go. He really believed that. This he was guy innocent. is
2: just a good hearted guy that believes people.
0: Yes, yes. 11 of them lived in the camper van, bouncing from state to state. Mm.
2: So, they're going over state lines. Yes. And he's out, he's technically, well, he got a suspended sentence, right? I imagine during that suspended sentence, he was not allowed to leave the state.
0: Oh, yeah, probably not. But, but I don't he also know that for sure. He also wasn't allowed to have contact with his family and he has his whole family living. Well, he has.
2: In a van down by the river. A
0: good portion of his family living in a fucking camper yeah. van with yeah. him. So yeah. they would go from renting places to stay to using the camper van at campgrounds when they didn't have. A place to stay, sure. And then Eddie would have to drive back to Ohio every two weeks to get his disability checks. This fucking guy. So that that's what th- that I was. Thought. What their life was at this point: trying to find places to to stay, staying there until they got kicked out or something happened. And, and they own the home, to- and they're doing all
2: of this because they need to skirt around Dad's legal troubles. Yep. Selfish fuck. They, they, there's so many layers. To this man's insanity and selfishness?
0: Yes. Chaos followed the family wherever they went. Eddie was trying to keep a low profile, but some of the kids probably bored out of their mind and completely isolated, acted out by robbing stores and houses. Eddie's reactions to their behavior varied. Sometimes he would beat them for putting the family at risk of being found. Other times he would help them hide the stuff they stole. The family treated Joel good terribly at this point. The things they did to him were straight up criminal. Pixie was often leading the charge and bullying him. Despite the fact that Joel was basically the only one that took care of the children they had together, Pixie was getting annoyed with him, I guess. She did not want to be with him any longer.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Well, I guess when you spend all your time together in this tiny little van, tensions get high.
0: Yeah. So Pixie thought it might be a good idea to get life insurance on Joel and then murder him to kill two birds with one stone. She could get rid of Joel and the family could collect some much-needed money.
2: Okay. I, I, okay.
0: At one point, the family was renting a mobile home owned by Eddie's brother, David, who apparently wanted to help him despite the allegations against him. The children, many who are adults at this point, started acting out in really violent ways. When their parents were gone, they had parties that often involved torturing Joel. They forced him to eat a live goldfish, and they sexually assaulted him in horrific ways. One night, they made him get completely naked before putting a funnel into his rectum and pouring hot sauce into it. Oh. Yeah. They also tried to sexually assault him with a broom. Oh, come on. The siblings, high from sniffing gasoline and smoking weed, would also have sex with one another. This was the consensual yeah. kind of well, Oh, they're look at their adults at this point. That, yes. When David found Joel, so remember David is Eddie's brother. Yep. When David found Joel beat up, barely able to walk, trying to get away from the trailer, he offered to send him home. He was trying to help him. He's like, they are going to kill you. You need to. You need to go. You need to go. He knew he was in danger of staying with the family, but Joel believed his father-in-law would take care of it, and he didn't want to leave Pixie and his children. Once Dave found out the siblings had gotten his own grandchild, so Dave's own grandchild, to join in on Joel's abuse, he was furious, and Uh at this point, he wanted them gone. And David's wife, who was obviously also furious and wanted them gone, said that, when she went out there after they left, she found, like, pentagrams drawn everywhere. Sure. And she did a whole, like, prayer ceremony to try to restore the to a, the space. Yeah. So the family packed up their camper van and made their way to a state park in Florida. And I think that that is where we're going to leave off for this episode. I didn't, like, kind of expected it to be pretty long just based on yeah. all uh, of the y- research and writing that I did but
2: you took hours days
0: yes across
2: multiple (laughs) hours across multiple days
0: yes I don't want to bore people with an incredibly long episode I want it to be palatable and have people be able to listen to all of it
2: yeah but what I really don't understand is how is there more like these people (laughs) they've
0: already that's what like that's what I'm saying the amount of crimes committed by this these parents is unlike anything I've think I've ever seen before. There's like a few cases that I can think of that are similar in the amount of crimes committed by the person, but not many. So
2: like the amount, but not always like the depravity. I mean, I, the whole thing about the seance, I think I'm going to have nightmares about that. I know. Because that was just a quick snippet. What was this guy doing on a daily basis to this
0: family? Yeah, that. That has honestly kept me up at night. No one starts
2: with a dead cat seance. No one. You have to build up to that because you've got 14 people, right, roughly, at the table. You, your wife, all your children. You have to know that they're not going to freak out and run away or go tell people.
0: Right. Yeah, they've been...
2: Condition Condition
0: to believe that this is normal and yeah. this is okay and this is good. And right. all of, yeah, all of the acts that led up to that to get them to that point is a really scary thing to think about.
2: Hell yeah, it is. Now, I can't wait to get back to this. So let's try to get it out soon.
0: Yes, we will. I'm so sorry for anyone who despises multi-part episodes this will most likely just be a two-part episode and I normally wouldn't do this I don't like to drag things on for longer than they need to be dragged on but there's just the sheer amount of information in this case makes it nearly impossible to do this in one episode so we will get the next episode out very soon but I want to say thank you so so much for listening and we will talk to you next week bye bye
1: derm.com.